Biden in Ukraine and Roald Dahl in the editing room. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, our new colleague, Noah Rothman, and the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Ball and Branch Sheets and Donors Trust. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, we are talking on Tuesday morning. Literally, as we speak, Joe Biden is in Poland after a surprise visit to Ukraine that our own Mark Wright conceded was a gutsy move, uh, required a lot of uh, uh, planning, and I think there were air, air raid silence, sirens in Kiev as he was there. We're going to uh, just deal with it exit question style, though, because we discussed Ukraine a lot last week. So the exit question, Jim, don't mess this one up. Joe Biden's trip to Ukraine changes everything, some commentators have said, yes or no. No, it does not change everything. Um, I think Biden did deserve credit. There was a small but not uh, non-existent risk to traveling to a war zone. Um, but I, I'm starting to wonder, though, Biden did leave this comment that he talked about how he left a piece of his heart in Ukraine. And I worry a bit that the more emotionally attached to Zelensky and Ukraine and the Ukrainian people Biden gets, the more... Um, the more he may start making decisions with his heart and his gut and less with his mind. I understand listeners probably think that all three are in rough shape. But uh, I, I do wonder this may see a more emotional Joe Biden perspective on Ukraine uh, moving forward. So, Noah Rothman, welcome. We're so delighted you are here. We've been admirers of your work for a very long time, both on uh, uh, on the air and uh, in print, so, but please do not mess up your first exit question. You must get this one right. <laughs> Does it change everything, yes or no? Well, thank you very much for the generous introduction. It's a thrill to be here. Uh, I, it doesn't change everything. I don't think it changes most things. I'm not sure what it changes, save to communicate uh, this administration's resolve to continue to support the regime in Kyiv. And this administration has two more years left on it. That's a that's a, a valuable signal to the alliance. Um, there's a, a lot of different opinions among the alliance on the frontier. They're much more hawkish. They're a little more reserved in Western Europe, and there's some wild cards in Turkey and Germany. And communicating that prima inter pares, Washington isn't going anywhere, uh, does help allow these uh, governments, these disparate governments, to plan for the near term. So a bonus extra question for you, Noah, since we're, we're treating you as, as our special guest here. Would Chinese military aid to Russia change everything? It would change a lot of things vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with Beijing. I don't think it would change the, the situation on the ground because the situation on the ground is deleterious from the Russian perspective because they just simply don't have the capacity to support infantry movements with armor, with air support. They just don't have that capability, and China's not going to change that, that situation on the ground no matter what they provide. It will, however, uh, dramatically alter, I think, bilateral relations with Washington in ways that, that would be destabilizing and disadvantageous, perhaps, from our perspective. But I don't think it would change the, the material situation that Russia's facing. Charlie Cook, Biden trip, change everything, anything? Well, if I may repeat what I said last week, I worry that it's made the situation worse if indeed we're headed toward the sort of settlement that you, Rich, have proposed is likely. Because this makes it more, not less clear that Ukraine is the morally correct party, which it is, and that Russia is the villain, which it is, but in turn makes it more difficult for a resolution to the war that is not the full restoration of Ukraine's borders. And while I agree almost entirely with the way that Joe Biden has proceeded on this question, I'm beginning to worry about the gap between what analysts are saying could be the most likely conclusion of the war and the rhetoric. And visiting the country should be seen as part of the rhetoric. If you look at the headlines that it generated, 
it essentially said this was it. This is the end for Putin. This is the full declaration of American support. Well, good, but to what end? Yeah, I don't think it really changes much of anything. It's a, a sign of resolve, which is healthy, but there is is also the, the issue that that Charlie um, <clears throat> highlights that we discussed last week. There, there's going to be this gap between the uh, stalwart uh, pay any price until total victory kind of rhetoric and sentiment and what what is likely going to have to be the the end of this thing when we reach it. With that, Charlie, let's go to you to hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets, which I hear are buttery soft. They are buttery soft. And they're buttery soft in all temperatures and environments, which for me means that they're buttery soft when it's cold, which is about five weeks of the year, and they're buttery soft when it's hot, which is the rest of the year. So while the cold weather does make me appreciate having a great set of sheets to cozy up in, so does the hot weather, because irrespective of the temperature, the butteriness is a constant. And that's because ball and branch sheets are made with 100% organic cotton threads that get softer with every single wash. Now I have the signature hemmed sheets, and those are a bestseller for a reason. It's because the sheets are made from slow-grown organic cotton because they are, as mentioned, buttery to the touch. They're super breathable. That matters when it's hot, especially. They're loved by millions of sleepers. In fact, they're so luxurious. They're loved by three US presidents. Don't know which ones. Doesn't really matter. And they have over 10,000 raving reviews. These signature sheets come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes, from twin up to California king. They're designed to feel incredible for all beds, all sleepers. They're made without toxins. They're free from pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. And they fit the deepest of mattresses. They're labeled with top and bottom tags. So if you're a bit of an idiot, as I am, even you can make your bed as easily as you ever have. And best of all, for all of this, Ball and Branch will give you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders, although, of course, you won't need to use that. So if you, too, want to make the most of your bedtime with ball and branch sheets, you can get 15% off your first order when you use promo code EDITORS15 at ballandbranch.com. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. But if you go to ballandbranch.com, B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com, and use promo code EDITORS15, you'll get 15% off that first order. Thanks so much, Charlie. So, Noah, <clears throat> sad news. Uh, John Fetterman uh, has been hospitalized at Walter Reed for severe depression. Depression is not something you want to mess around with and should be treated uh, seriously. And uh, we, we all obviously wish him the best, but the political commentary around this has been highly annoying when he had his stroke um you know they, they're hiding the ball about it and how severely it had affected him then he had to do one debate it was kind of evident to everyone how how severely it had affected him and uh anyone who noticed was called an, an ableist and fetterman was praised for his incredible courage for uh standing up there and not being able to perform very well you know not not his fault he he'd uh, suffered a serious health event and then the the people who said you know we have doubts about whether he could be a senator were uh, accused of, of being terrible haters and now lo and behold you have this depression which seems pretty clearly related to the difficulty of his recovery the difficulty uh, with was magnified, you know, several times, obviously, by running for the, the Senate and trying to serve as a senator while he was recovering from this. And lo and behold, the same people who praised him for his great courage for uh, staying and trying to, to do this uh, against more responsible advice are now praising, praising him for his great courage and go, going and getting uh, help for, um, for, for the effects of one of the consequences of doing what he shouldn't have been doing in the first place. Well, old habits die hard, I suppose. And this is what we were treated to over the entirety of the campaign since since he had his stroke right before the primary. Um, he was not treated as a human being. He was treated as an avatar 
for a variety of, of uh, sort of ill-defined prejudices. He was also treated as a tool to win the Democrats the United States Senate, and that was their primary objective. And they papered over a lot of very legitimate concerns that were obviously exposed during that debate, but were quite apparent not only to NBC reporter Dasha Burns, who was the subject of an AP article examining her uh, professional failures for having the the temerity to notice her environment. Um, But a lot of people were suggesting that, uh, you know, well, yeah, he's got problem speaking, but, you know, that's sort of an everyman thing. And also, it's not really a big deal that he's going to have to use technology to navigate the Senate because the Senate doesn't actually do anything. It's just a deliberative body. He's just going to push a button that his party tells him to push. He's a robot. So who cares? That was the unspoken message throughout the campaign, the brushback pitches that were directed at individuals who noticed that this man was in extreme, profound distress and had a medical emergency and needed to prioritize his recovery. They, his allies, his supporters said, you don't have to prioritize your recovery. Maybe you can, you know, you can get along with this. You can get by. And also there are bigger things to worry about. And lo, the consequences are upon us. And it's rather appalling to watch it, to be privy to it, to be party to it. Uh, it's an immoral catastrophe. I wrote about this briefly for The Corner yesterday. Uh, the Atlantic's Jennifer Senior um, wrote about how John Fetterman had been, quote, basically forced to contend with the effects of his severe brain trauma while working an absurdly demanding job. But by whom? Who forced him? It wasn't all these nefarious forces that she casts aspersions on on the right. It was his supposed allies and supporters. They deserve a lot of uh, a lot of the credit for what they've wrought and what they've done to John Fetterman. So, Charlie Cook, you were, were saying pretty much from the beginning that the, there there's no way this is going to go well. There's no way he's he's going to be able to to serve functionally as a United States senator. No, they were lying. They lied from the beginning about his condition and its implications. They lied about what is likely to happen to a person if that person has a life-threatening stroke and then, instead of convalescing, runs for the Senate. And they lied about their intentions. They lied about what they really thought about this. They lied about how people who have had strokes are routinely treated in politics. Of course, we all remember because we remember Mark Kirk. The writing was on the wall. And I think what irritated me so much at the time, and I wrote this at National Review, was that we all knew that they were lying. And they knew we knew that they were lying. None of us believed this. No one believed this. No one thought Dasha Burns was wrong. No one thought Kara Swisher was on the level. That debate was a disgrace. There were still people after that debate saying he did fine or making facetious arguments. Well, he did better than Dr. Oz. Ha, ha, ha. No, he didn't. He was a man in medical distress. He's still a man in medical distress. If indeed he has auditory aphasia, that is a serious condition. It's been interesting to watch how John Fetterman's symptoms have been covered in concert with Bruce Willis's. Of course, Bruce Willis wasn't running for office as a Democrat. His victory wasn't necessary to secure a majority. So the pieces about Bruce Willis's condition could be honest and open, moving, harrowing. The ones about John Fetterman's condition were not. This was a lie from the start. We also knew the game here. The game was to have him win, have him announce that he could no longer do his job, and have the presumed, correctly presumed, it turned out, Democratic governor of Pennsylvania appoint a replacement, and that's what's going to happen. It is not an attack on John Fetterman to point this out, and it never was. It is not an attack on disabled people to point this out, and it never was. It is not an attack on stroke victims or sufferers from auditory aphasia or any other neurological condition to point this out. It was obvious three months ago. It is obvious now. The most annoying part of this is the repeated use of the word forced. I've written about this. Noah's written about this. He was not forced to run. He was not forced into a difficult position. He was not forced to contend with this or that environmental factor. He chose to do it. He chose to stay in the race. Many people said he shouldn't. 
It's not as if he was operating in an environment in which no one had ever thought before that stroke survivors might not be the best candidates for public office. Lots of people said he should drop out. He didn't drop out. And what is happening now is entirely predictable. And of course, on a human level, I feel sorry for him. But we also have to have some accountability and personal responsibility here. And he simply did not make the right decision. So, Jim, do you <clears throat> buy that, that that was basically the play? We'll get him over the finish line. If he recovers, fantastic. If he doesn't recover, we have in our back pocket a Democratic governor who certainly is going to beat Doug Mastriano. Uh, basically, a, a no-hoper, no sort of worst example of a, uh, a Trump candidate kicking away at least what should have been a competitive race. And he'll be able to... Re- pick a replacement if need be. Yeah, I, I, look, we were pleasantly surprised that immediately after the election results were certified, there was not an announcement that, ah, I cannot serve in the Senate, and here is my wife Giselle serving, or, you know, some other, uh, shortly thereafter, you know, some other one. It, one of the oddities here, though, is that the this might have, this entire use of Fetterman as a prop or an object as this guy who was just meant to be pushed over the finish line. Um, If you believe that John Fetterman was the only guy in the world who could possibly beat the electoral, you know, whirling dervish of raw charisma, political powerhouse that is Mehmet Oz, then I guess you could say this callous (laughs) use of Fetterman makes sense. But I think in retrospect, it's pretty clear, you know, Congressman Connor Lamb or State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta at minimum, they wouldn't be that different, right? I mean, you know, Fetterman beat Oz by like more than 250,000 votes, right? If, you know, one of those other Democrats had run, there would not have been the health issue hanging over it. We don't know how many, you know, votes this cost Fetterman. Clearly not clearly not enough. Uh, but the idea that, oh, uh, you know, the only Fetterman could have done this it never, never made sense. It didn't make sense then, and it makes even less sense now. But I think the thing that jumps out at this, and I wrote about this a bit yesterday in The Jolt, that like, so all these people, although I was looking at this saying, oh my God, this poor man, he, he should not be running for office. He should be focusing on his recovery. Why are you, you know, like rolling him out like this? Why are you making him go up on a debate stage and struggle when we can all see that his, you know, first of all, his campaign has lied from the beginning. Unfortunately, it appears he too has lied from the beginning when he first said that he was well on his way to a full recovery. No, no, you don't recover from a stroke quickly and easily. Um, those of us who didn't, you know, aren't normally nom- uh, uh, all that friendly to Democrats, looked at it and said, for God's sake, let this man recover. Find somebody else to run. This, you know, It's not like Kenyatta or Lamb are going to vote all that differently if he ends up in the Senate. And we were villainized. We were the bad guys. There was something wrong with us for saying, no, he shouldn't do this. And the allegedly compassionate and caring and understanding Democrats, their position was, no, this guy has to do this, which actually is the complete inversion of this. And now he's in this situation where God, I hope the poor guy gets out of Walter Reed soon. I hope he makes a full recovery. But of course, it's going to be really being a senator is a hard job when you're when you're in full health. And he got just went through something that nearly killed him. You know, you know, surprise, surprise, he got clinical depression. So we should should really dwell on that point, Jim, because it drives me absolutely nuts. Imagine the hole that he's in. Imagine how profoundly alone he feels in a city he doesn't know, without his family, that's home in Pennsylvania, surrounded by people he can't understand who want something from him. And the people who have who claim the mantle of bottomless human compassion are the folks saying this is no big deal. It's appalling. And while Democrats will control the Senate, while he's out on the committees that Fetterman serves on, it's going to be a 50-50 split. And yes, he can do proxy voting, but he can, a proxy vote cannot be the deciding vote to get something out of committee. So the, for all extents and purposes, if Republicans are unified, they have a veto over the committees until he returns. Looks like he's going to be at Walter Reed. They say a couple of weeks. They say less than two months. And Congress, uh, Senate's out of session this week. They're out for like two weeks in April for Easter, Passover, et cetera. So maybe this won't be a huge factor. But I, I don't understand. I'm a right of center guy. Why am I the guy saying John Fetterman should be at home and taking care of himself? And find, you know, There are other things he can do with his life. And why are the Democrats so adamant, no, no, this guy's got to stay there, even if he is, you know, struggling to, to function right now? So, Noah, let's go to neighboring state, Ohio. There was a train derailment in a small town uh, in Ohio, East Palestine. This was something that uh, there wasn't a lot of focus on. Even even some of the people now who have their hair uh 
really on fire about it. Didn't say anything early on, uh, but clearly Pete Buttigieg has been tone deaf in his handling of this. Usually there's a disaster, you know, you put on your boots, you windbreaker, you, you go and visit. And uh, however effective your response is, at least you're indicating that you care. Uh, he didn't do that. He just tweeted uh, something about it t 10 days after uh, the fact. Uh, Right-wing populists have been saying, well, look, th this is because this is a, uh, a small rural town of white people. And if this had happened someplace else, you know, in Harlem, and you could get an uh, environmental racism narrative going, th this would have been a much bigger deal. I think that's correct. But then there's the... the um, uh, there, there's kind of in, in further inflammatory rhetoric around this, like, um, you know, fr freight trains are just these ticking time bombs, and they're, they're, they're going off all the time because of corporate greed, where freight, freight rail is safer than it was 20 years ago. Uh, <clears throat> High-speed rail will never be a thing in this country, but really effective freight rail is a thing in this country. Uh, certainly since deregulation, there's been focus on, well, you're running these really long trains with only two or three people in them. It has nothing to do with it, that. There's no indication they're, they're less safe. There's been focus on this regulation that Obama wanted that would have had uh, different kinds of brakes on these sort of trains, there's, and uh, Trump said, no, we're not going to do that. Actually, it wouldn't have affected this train because technically it wasn't a, a high hazard uh, train, but it also doesn't appear to, be, to have been a braking issue. It seems to be an axle that overheated, but what do you make of it? Yeah, so the initial uh, NTSB finding was that there was this uh, axle, as you say, problem and, and user error, improper braking procedures, and also possible weight distribution issues were to blame for this one, and, and perhaps others. Um, and the... Uh, local EPA uh, greenlit this burn, which apparently has, may or may not have uh, contributed to some environmental and health problems for local residents. And to hear the commentary around this from the uh, progressive left and nationalist right in the, on the both ends of the horseshoe, uh, you would think that a com commercial rail in this country is some sort of Randian enterprise dominated by rapacious capitalists from, like, from uh, caricatures from uh, Agen Yolk. I mean, it's, as you say, there's, all this is, is a federal enterprise and a state and local enterprise. It's, it's dominated by government officials. And a lot of people are focusing on, on the left and the right, are focusing on this precision schedule railroading, which unions dislike because it's automation, which is fueling personnel reductions. Mm -hmm. And Congress looked into this last year. You know, we almost had a rail strike last year. It was a big deal. Made a lot of headlines. And in congressional investigations, it exposed a fair amount of tensions between the NTSB and Federal Railroad Administration Administrator uh, Amit Bose. But it was over data collection. It was not over precision schedule railroading. This didn't convince Democrats of the union's claims. Biden intervened on the on the uh, in this in this negotiation. But the sticking points were not over safety issues. It was over additional pay, sick leave, and scheduling flexibility. All these federal yeah, officials, they disappear from this narrative whenever government, whenever you have a rail disaster like this. Government is responsible for all of railway successes and a powerful and a powerless spectator, rather, whenever its failures are exposed. No, I think people have a vision uh, from the 19th century or something where you have these engineers on the railroad and they're, they're walking up and down every single car and, and checking it manually and making sure everything's okay. So there's no way you can do that with two people. Whereas, uh, as Dominic Pino points out, there actually, there were three people on this train. They're all sitting in, in the, uh, um, the, the, the front car monitoring the, the same exact, uh, gauges, um, and, uh, uh um, data output. So it's, it's it's they, there's this kind of um, romantic vision of, about what's happening. You know, Marco Rubio has complained about this as well, or asked questions about it. Well, it's just not it's not how trains work now. It's a highly regulated enterprise, and I don't think anybody on this podcast or anywhere else, frankly, on the right is saying that this doesn't need to be a highly regulated enterprise. But when the regulatory apparatus fails at its charge, it somehow becomes the problem of rapacious capitalists not the enterprise itself. And they haven't really bridged that gap. Like you said, it took Pete Buttigieg a week and a half to figure out how to blame this on Republicans. <laughs> and, so, and that was really the, the primary priority here, just to establish the right talking points, not to address whatever the problem is, because perhaps the problem lies at the feet of uh, people closer to Pete Buttigieg and the progressive left. 
So, Charlie, exit question to you. Let's go to another political topic. Don Lemon gave an unbelievable gift to Nikki Haley's presidential campaign when he responded to her line about uh, you know, the country is not past its prime, but you have our politicians are past their prime. And he's like, you know what? You're past your prime. You know, she's she's in what in her early fifties. Uh, this did not go well for him. Uh, the women uh, that uh, co-host that terrible morning show with him did not take it well. It became a big national story. So, ask a question to you. Don Lemon will continue to be a, a co-host of that show for the duration. Yes or no? Well, that depends. If we lived in Charles Cook's world, he would because he would apologize and be forgiven. But we live in Don Lemon's world. And Don Lemon has created the environment within which Don Lemon is unable to make mistakes. It depends what sort of person is running CNN at the moment. I suspect he will be fired because if the internal dynamics at CNN are what they seem to be at all major media outlets at the moment, he will be set upon by staffers and have to go. Jim Garrity. Um... Don Lemon acts like a guy who doesn't want to be at CNN for much longer. I know that there are certain figures who kind of thrive on controversy, but you kind of wonder whether this is the image CNN wants to have. And, you know, like as somebody, somebody summarized it very succinctly, um, how much do you have to screw up to get in trouble for criticizing a Republican on CNN? <laughs> no, Rothman. There's a lot of speculation, and it's just speculation, that Chris Licht wants to move on from the the previous iteration of CNN, of which Don Lemon was a big part, and this gives him an opportunity to do so. He's had ample opportunities to do so. It's not as though this is a, an isolated incident. I feel like we just had a Don Lemon controversy like two weeks ago. I don't remember what it was because they're so common that it's become a regular occurrence. But he doesn't need an excuse, and he certainly shouldn't fear. I don't know how many divisions Don Lemon can raise, but he certainly shouldn't fear reprisals over it. If this is a new direction that CNN wants to go in, they should join the side they're on and own it. They don't need excuses. Take uh, take responsibility here. So I'm with Charlie. <clears throat> you step on it. You apologize. You know, everyone should move on. The, this, the thing, though, is the show is terrible. Uh, morning shows like that, they depend on chemistry. Even before this, there was no chemistry. In fact, there was the opposite on that show because he has contempt for his female co-host for whatever reason. So um, whether, whether this is the, the precipitating event or just the fact it's a terrible show and he's a big reason it's a terrible show, he will be uh, out of there uh, sooner or later with that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Donors Trust. Cancel culture doesn't just affect comedians and commentators anymore. It also affects everyday hardworking Americans. How so? It derails their charitable giving. Take Jeannie's story, for example. Jeannie did her charitable giving through one of the big national giving account providers. That is until, without a clear reason, it refused to send her charitable dollars to a conservative nonprofit. She shares her story this way. Quote, I'm a conservative. I believe America is great despite her imperfections, and capitalism brings great good to society rather than government. Earlier this year, I continued to see the need to support conservative organizations, so I requested another gift from my donor-advised fund, and it was rejected. That is why I moved to Donors Trust, end quote. Jeannie wanted a donor-advised fund that shares her conservative principles and found that in Donors Trust. The oldest and largest donor-advised fund committed to limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. Do you worry about cancel culture getting in the way of your charitable goals? Do you simply want a principled partner helping you to support causes close to your heart? If so, consider opening a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust. For more information on how Donors Trust can help you with your charitable giving, visit www.donorstrust.org. NR to receive a free copy of their donor prospectus. That's www.donorstrust.org slash NR. Please check it out. So, Charlie, we had uh, big news about Roald Dahl. Uh, last couple of days, I think the Daily Telegraph broke the story about how he's being uh, edited on the fly, and there's only one of us on this podcast who broke into tears when his parents very 
gently broke it to him that Dahl had passed away, and that was you. No question. I was six years old. I'd read every Roald Dahl book. Just finished Matilda, which had been my birthday present. And I had assumed, the world being endless in my estimation, that there would be more to come, perhaps forever. And then he was gone. So I cried. He was my favorite author. I think he still is my favorite author. I reread his autobiographies. He wrote two, one of his childhood, one of his time in World War II recently, Boy and Going Solo, respectively. And they're terrific, even for adults. And then there's all his adult literature. I have two collections by my bed, actually. One is the Great Automatic Grammatizator. I think that's what it's called. The other is a Henry Sugar collection. But it had not occurred to me until this week that those books might be updated because Roald Dahl is dead. Very dead. Completely dead. Irrevocably dead. And has been for 32 years. Now his publisher put out this statement which will apparently be prepended to all of the new editions of the books, which read that it, Puffin, will, and I quote, regularly review the language to ensure that it can, can continue to be enjoyed by all today. So first off, that is totalitarianism. It's not authoritarianism. One of the commenters on NR mistook these two words. I didn't, in my piece, call it authoritarianism because it's not authoritarian. The publisher has the authority, the right, the power to do this, but it shouldn't. The instinct which it is privately exercising here is totalitarian. This idea that the works of the past need to be continually revised to fit with contemporary sensibilities. They don't. But it is an appalling way to look at art. It's vandalism, in my estimation. The second problem is that I was not aware, and I've seen no evidence in favor of the proposition, that there were people who weren't enjoying Roald Dahl's books today. Who are these figures? How many of them are there? I don't think anyone outside of a handful of so-called sensitivity readers, extremely strange people in hock to bizarre ideologies, would, for a single second, have thought to make any of the changes that they have made. This is not some market-driven enterprise. This is not the product of a widespread and relentless sense that there was something wrong with the books that was an impediment to new readers enjoying them. This is part of a fringe political project that most people, including, I assume, most children, hate. Now, the changes that were made range from innocuous to creepy. Some of the changes, for example, involve the rescission of the word fat, crazy, ugly, it's difficult to imagine Roald Dahl's books without those words because so many of his characters are fat and crazy and ugly. <laughs> but you can imply that people are fat, crazy, or ugly without using those words. But then there are other parts where you really are altering the meaning in a sinister way. And I think the most sinister part of this actually is the alteration of the books that Matilda reads now, for those who don't know, Matilda is a prodigy who at the age of five or six is able to do mathematics and read books that most children cannot. And there's a passage within Matilda in which her activities are described. She finds the literary canon, thanks to her teacher, Miss Honey, and she goes through it very quickly. The book, since it was published in 1988, has described her reading habits as 
such. She went on olden day sailing ships with Joseph Conrad. She went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway and to India with Rudyard Kipling. There's actually a little more Kipling quoted in it. She likes the word Limpopo. But now it reads, she went to 19th century estates with Jane Austen. She went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway and California with John Steinbeck. Why? The reason I say that's sinister is that this is not a change based on what would be cast as good manners, although I still think is totalitarian. This is not the removal of a fat joke. This is not the rescission of the word black when used to describe something dark. This is a literary call. And I think it bodes extremely ill because if you can't fathom, if you can't tolerate a book in which a character is described as reading Rudyard Kipling, what are you going to do to Rudyard Kipling mm-hmm. when you get the chance? What are you going to do to Joseph Conrad when you get the chance? That is a considerable change to remove Conrad and Kipling and substitute in Steinbeck and Austin, who aren't mentioned in Matilda, it is, I think, a, an ugly augury and uh, one that people should worry about even if they're not fans of Roald Dahl. So, Jim, a, another th- thing here, and, and Charlie hit on this on his, in his wonderful piece about this <clears throat> controversy on the, the website. The people making these changes, you know, they're not like John Updike. They're not like the committee who, you know, wrote the King James Bible. They're terrible apparatchiks and talentless hacks. So there's not one change where you look at it and you're like, oh, all right, you know, it, it's that's a little more sensitive and contemporary, but it's an improvement. There's not a single one. Every single one makes a text uh, worse, gives it less flavor. Yeah, look, one of the things, first of all, I think almost every parent that has some memory of some childhood favorite reaches for it, is eager to share it with their children, and probably finds something that either, you know, hasn't held up quite as well or sounds a little awkward or we don't use terms like that anymore and things like that. Um, my wife had a, a book called Carlson on the Roof by some Swedish author. And uh, it had lots of like, you know, bullying, calling someone four eyes, you know, t- describing people as fat and making fun of their weight and stuff like that, which a generation ago was just not seen as that bad. Although I do think in the case of Roald Dahl, uh, James of the Giant Peach and uh, a lot of these stories. Uh, you know, Willie with Willie, like one of the things that makes Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory fascinating is that all the bad kids die. And I'm making air quotes mm-hmm. as I say that. Like, you know, they like like mm-hmm. there is something a little dark in, in sort of pleasure pleasure inducing ways. Right? Yeah, right? you're kind of like you know, yeah, ways that are inextricable. <laughs> Yeah, and, and like in the movie Seven, in ways that are inextricable from their sins, right. which is the point. Yeah. Yeah. And if you take out Augustus Gloop's weight, he can't be a glutton, and therefore he can't die in the way that a glutton should die. <laughs> I think this is a big part of the appeal of these sort. Like, kids know Dick and Jane. They know this sweet saccharine, no conflict, no evil, no problem, uh, oversimplified vision of the world. And generally somewhere by elementary school, they're like, eh, I, the world doesn't seem quite like that. There's something more mm-hmm. going on here. And so a, a children's author that can introduce these concepts, that maybe not everyone's nice, but certain behaviors are good, certain behaviors are bad. And, you know, we're going to show why you shouldn't be like these kids in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, I mean, and I think every parent goes through this. I'm growing, I, I learned how to read on the Richard Scarry picture books. And mm-hmm. there's not, you know, there's some stuff about cowboys and Indians that are, you know, a little dated references and things like that. I was really much more disturbed when I noticed how many of the, you know, jobs in your neighborhood or jobs in your town that the butcher, the butchers were always pigs. Yeah. And they were cutting bacon <laughs> and ham. And I'm like, I'm hoping that's not anyone you know. Um, but so we all have these dynamics. Those are wonderful books, oh, though. What, what a fertile imagination that guy yeah. had, too. Um, so I just want to observe what we see here by these, you know, sensitivity readers is not all that different from what we see going on in Hollywood, where you take some beloved institution franchise, Star Wars, Star Trek, Mar- whatever, you know, thing you loved mm-hmm. as a kid. 
And then it comes along and it gets, quote unquote, updated for modern audiences. The uh, YouTube critic of the Critical Drinker does this great routine where he points out that these, these modern audiences that they say that they're attempting to revise these things for doesn't exist. They don't go see these movies. They, oh, they, they are, there is, there's this idea that there's this huge mass out there that will be offended if they see, whether it's, you know, James and the Giant Peach the way it originally was, or uh, William the Wonka the Chocolate Factory, or the old-style Star Trek, or the old-style Marvel Comics, that all this stuff is somehow no longer palatable. And yet, that is the audience for these these demographics. There is no sign mm-hmm. of parents, you know, going to their library and saying, "Oh my God, this giant peach book! It's it's terrible. You, you expose my children to it." Quick, let's go to the quick the nearest you know drag queen story hour. Yeah. So so Noah, how do you think about um, the the issue that the Oompa Loompas in <clears throat> in the book? And to my shame, I've never read the book. Are you know clearly kind of based on African pygmies or, or or something like that? You know, some something that would make you you know kind of wince. Uh, in the, in the movie, they're changed to these uh, orange people, and the, the movie looms so large for me because I never read the book. I always assumed the Oompa Loompas were these uh, strange orange people, but they're not. So, how do you think about you know editing around something like that? Um, and if you're okay with it, uh, which I wouldn't assume, but if you are, how do you draw a line between that and what's going on now? I have read these books to my children. I'm reading the collection to my children, uh, Roald Dahl's works, uh, over the course of the last couple of months. And I confess that having steeped myself in progressive orthodoxy, I detected areas where a, a sensitivity reader would say, oh, that's that's not great. The Oompa didn't trigger that in me, in part because mm-hmm. we've overcome that. And this is something, and a lot of people have criticized mm-hmm. these and other authors for um, fashionable anti-Semitic ideas. And it's everywhere. That's in Shakespeare, that's in Dickens, that's in Dostoevsky. And it was overcome. It's something that we look back on as quaint, as anachronistic, in ways that are heartening. Not, not uh, something that you should look on with despair, as though we've come no farther, these are, these are museum pieces. This is quite literally Baudlerization. I don't mean literally in the sense that Joe Biden means it. Dr. Thomas Baudler performed what was believed to be in his day a profound public service when he stripped the works of Shakespeare and even the Old Testament of references to sexuality, titillation, or perhaps Roman Catholicism. Um, and the sensitivities of his day were such that he was regarded as something of a hero. We don't look back on his work fondly 200 years in the future, Perhaps it'll take that long to get there. But there was an element of paranoia in that, and there's an element of paranoia in this. The the level of neuroticism you have to have to see uh, something that can trigger prejudice in impressionable minds here. One of these um, uh, efforts at Baudelarizations from the witches, where they strike this passage. You don't go around pulling the hair of every lady you meet, even if she's wearing gloves. Just try it and see what happens. That was changed, too. Besides, there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. The level of neuroticism you have to have to see in that a cue that would trigger prejudicial thoughts in children is profound, is something you should seek help for. You're projecting your insecurities onto other people in ways that aren't helpful to you and certainly not helpful to them. And yes, I do think we'll look back on this enterprise and cringe. I hope it won't take 200 years to get there. So, Charlie Cook, X question to you. This kind of uh, politically correct editing of the works of dead authors, uh, will uh, this, this trend will um, continue to get stronger or will, will recede in the medium term? I honestly don't know. On the one hand, I think that the broad backlash this has received might put off others. On the other hand, I was told yesterday by somebody that they don't think this will change a great deal because the number of people who truly care about it or would be willing to do anything about it is so small. The changes are all told relatively minor, and so the source of pressure is limited. I think that this, though, is a symptom and so you can't really answer your question without answering whether or not you think that the instincts that led to this in the first place will diminish. And I do think that. I think that the 
power held by those at the margins who are engaging in this is diminishing. And I think that when they begin to be kicked out, whether for economic or other reasons, then the impetus for this will in turn diminish. Jim Garrity. I'm kind of where Charlie is. I, I don't think, I, I think they're going to lose this immediate fight. I think they're just going to move on to uh, other authors that are less well-known and may have less well-established fan bases. And, you know, they'll, they'll get more subtler. They'll, they'll get subtler about it. They'll get, you know, quieter about it. Um, and, and the other thing I kind of think about is we've seen, as I mentioned earlier, these politically correct or woke or revised versions of Hollywood offerings flop. And yet it's been a very long, slow process to see Hollywood learning from its mistakes and realizing that the audience for this is not there the way they think it is. Um, so I don't think we're going to see a full-scale retreat of this, but they may not work in the case of Roald Dahl. No. The, the problem is, is that this is led by institutions that have been captured mm-hmm. and are impenetrable. The American Library Association and its house journal have been banging on these drums for years. It's not just To Kill a Mockingbird or Huckleberry Finn anymore. It's Of Mice and Men. It's uh, Theodore Taylor's The K. It's The Odyssey by Homer. Uh, It expands, oh, of course, and every work by Laura Ingalls Wilder, whose foremost sin is to be an anti-New Dealer. Uh, All these things are driven by a small cabal that has captured an institution that is very influential and, and resistant to public sentiment. So I don't see that changing just because public sentiment has turned against it the institutions themselves would have to open up. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think the answer is stronger with that. Let me do a quick plug for NR+. If you're listening to this podcast and thinking, wow, these guys, Jim, Noah, and Charlie, are incredibly knowledgeable, well-informed, insightful, I agree with you. And I urge you, I'm going to try to guilt you into supporting their work, not just by listening to this podcast. We appreciate you listening. But it'd be great if you could pay just a little bit for their work. It's really an important way to support the valuable things that National Review does. They're great first-time deals any given moment running at nationalreview.com. So please, please, please go and sign up if you haven't already for NR+. Also, all sorts of uh, nifty benefits you get, but at the end of the day, the, the important thing is just pay pay a little bit for the, the kind of uh, insight you get on this podcast and um, in our on our uh, website and in our printed pages every single day. With that, we're running a little um, <clears throat> tight on time. I've been trying to get the podcast down under an hour. I'll sometimes look up and say, oh my gosh, it's, it's an hour and 20 minutes. Who's running this podcast? But it's my responsibility. So I'm going to try to get us under 60 minutes. So we're going to go to an exit question on chatbots. This has been a focus the last week or so. You've had a lot of tech uh, journalists uh, writing very uh, amusing and compelling stories about the weird conversations they've had with uh, chatbots, uh, especially this Bing bot codenamed Sydney. A New York Times reporter had a long conversation with Sydney, and by the end, uh, at least in one of these conversations, Sydney was trying to convince the New York Times reporter that uh, he was in love uh, with Sydney. And with the reporter, when the reporter said, ah, "You know what? Uh, actually, I'm happily married," so he's like, "No, no, you're not." He's like, "Yes, I am. I just had a a nice Valentine's dinner with my wife." And he's like, "No, you didn't. It was a boring Valentine's dinner." And on and on, uh, Sydney's made threats to various. Uh, journalists. So what is your level of alarm and fear one day of a chatbot falling in love with you, Jim Garrity, from zero to 10, zero, you're not worried at all. You realize these bots are just repeating back things they're scraping from the internet, no matter how much they seem to have a personality, to 10 these things are going to go rogue, self-actualize, and our hair has to be on fire. Well, the chatbot falling in love with me, I'm at a 0.1. <laughs> I'm an acquired taste. Uh, apparently, even the AI is not. Oh. All right. So I've mentioned on previous podcasts that my older teenager, because now I have two, um, is really into AI, really has studied this stuff and keeps assuring me that, you know, everything I know from the Terminator movies is not a reliable, <laughs> accurate source of information and that the AI can only do whatever it's programmed to do. 
that, that basically, unless you tell the AI, this is how you destroy humanity, the AI will never say, hey, I think it'd be a neat idea to destroy humanity this way. I do wonder, though, that when you see these sorts of AIs that are designed to interact with the general public, like if, for example, if the AI is like, you know, you're not happy in your marriage and, you know, run away with me, the AI, like, you know, you kind of wonder, are there lots of people who are not happy in their marriage who are venting about it to the AI chatbot? And then it kind of incorporates that into, oh, this is how human beings are. This is what human beings want to talk about. This is what human beings have on their mind. Um that if you hook it up to the internet, I think Microsoft did something where they, you know, hooked it up to Twitter and within like 24 hours, it had turned into a pornographic Nazi, you know, <laughs> and that's what happens when you, you know, you know key lesson about Twitter. Um, and it kind of was this indis- indication, like human beings, when they interact with an AI, know they're interacting with something that is not human. So they don't, like human beings treat human beings terribly. Imagine what happens when human beings have an object that they feel like they can vent whatever they feel like to. So in that circumstance, that AI is going to have a lot of really, you know, nasty, toxic, negative stuff going into it. And I don't think that necessarily brings to the rise of Skynet, but I do think it goes, you know, it will reflect back. I guess in the end, AI is like a mirror. It reflects back whatever humanity is putting into it. And unfortunately, we have enough problems with the dark side of humanity itself. We don't need an AI mirror reflecting those worst parts of humanity. So say so your number? Uh, it's point one, 0.1. Okay. Uh, Noah, you're at a 10. Well, I think I'd be flattered. So I'm not exactly sure whether I'd be afraid of it. I guess maybe a one or a two. Um, but as Jim said, these are all inputs by human beings. And a human being is responsible for them somewhere. Uh, much like killer robots, there's liability on the other side of this. There's a human being that you can hold uh, accountable for whatever the seemingly artificial intelligence. Artificial doesn't stand for autonomous. Uh, or the A doesn't stand for autonomous. So it's a category error to say, you know, well, these guys are, are just sentient and they're coming for us in some degree or another. I am, I'm not nervous about that. Charlie Cook? Well, if I understand your question correctly, you seem to be assuming that the chatbots are not already in love with me. And I, I had presumed that they would be. Am I, am I wrong? Yeah, your le- your level of overall worry, including... Chapoff falling in love with you or confessing well, his love. I, I, I'm not worried at the moment because I think that most of the panic that you're seeing, including that New York Times piece, is the product of a misunderstanding, whether willful or not, of how this technology actually works. It's not sentient. And until we reach Skynet, and we're nowhere near it, in my view, then I'm not worried by technology that is really a more sophisticated version of the usual input-output mechanisms that we live with every day. So, one. I'm also a a one. Uh, These stories were were great. They're a lot of fun to read. They're kind of creepy. But as uh, Charlie sent me a a link to a debunking story pointing out that as you get deeper and deeper with these chatbots and they're scraping, trying to find, you know, what their deepest fears supposedly are, what kind of threat they could represent, they're they're repeating back things people have written about what what you know the, the threat they could represent and and whatnot. So ultimately, it is just guessing and repeating, um, uh, going going with the next sentence what they think logically should follow from the sentence that, that came before. So I'm also a one. So we're really nice and relaxed about the threat, uh, alleged threat of chatbots. And with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim, you've been partaking of Japanese barbecue. Yeah. um, There's been a restaurant in my neck of the woods that uh, we've tried to go into several times. It always seemed to be filled and, you know, long waits. So we uh, finally made reservations this past weekend, and I guess it's probably not all that different from other you know Korean barbecue places. But it's got this little grill in the middle of the table, and then they bring out you you know bring out the food, whether it's shrimp, scallops, meat, beef, chicken, you know all that kind of stuff, and it comes out in these little servings, and you yourself cook it yourself. You could say you know it's a very strange way. This is a brilliant form of outsourcing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this way, you know, if you want it on the rarer side, you make it the rarer. You want it on the more well done side, you do it more well done. And uh, my kids just got a real kick out of it. It was kind of like, you know, this little bit of barbecue grilling right at your table. Um, and it just was different. It was just was something that 
uh, it would come out and periodically, and then we'd put it on there, and we'd watch it cook and all that kind of stuff. And it just was a little more interactive than uh, the typical restaurant experience. So it was, you know, it's kind of neat new experience. It's very rare you go to a restaurant and you say, "Hey, I've never done anything quite like that before." All right. And on the cooking theme, Noah, you've been doing sous vide cooking. I was convinced that this was too complicated for a while, and then I just started doing it, and it's foolproof. So take a take a steak, we go to Costco, get a loin, cut it up into medallions, you put it in a little bag, you seal the bag, you put some spices butter in there, and you put it in water. And you set the water temperature to precisely the temperature you want it to be. Say, I like a medium filet, so 135. And then you just leave it there for hours, and it will never get hotter than 135. It's foolproof. Sear it, throw it on a plate, you got yourself a restaurant-quality steak for maybe 10 bucks. It's an incredible innovation. I couldn't recommend it more highly. Yeah, so I have limited experience with it. Uh, we've never done it here, but I've been at other people's homes where they've done it. And it, it looks like it totally shouldn't work, right? I mean, it looks absurd. <laughs> you think you're boiling meat? No, not at all. So, Charlie Cook, you guys made a visit to the local science museum. We did, and I'm afraid with this one, I struck out, at least with my younger son. I came up with the idea in the morning. I thought it would be a nice surprise for them, uh, but it apparently wasn't for a couple of reasons. First off, I believed, having read the reviews, that there was a big dinosaur exhibit, and it turned out that the dinosaur exhibit was temporary, and it had closed three months ago, so all of my explanations on the way were false, and the five-year-old was not impressed by this. But the second thing I realized was that while the Jacksonville Science Museum is fine, my kids have been spoiled by the other attractions in Florida because whatever aquatic animals they have are not going to measure up to SeaWorld, which they've been to. And whatever cool scientific retrofuturistic displays they have are not going to measure up to Epcot, which they've been to. So when we left and we were driving out, I said, what was your favorite bit to my five-year-old? And he said, none of it. I hated all of it. So unfortunately, uh, I, uh, I struck out with this one. So not, not much going on here. All, all I can report is I got yet another signed a photo, this time from the great Oscar Gamble. He uh, was with the Yankees in the late 70s, had the best hair in baseball and one of the best baseball cards ever when he was traded to the Yankees. The uh, Topps uh, baseball cards had to paint a Yankee uh, hat onto his uh, afro, and it's one of the most bizarre and hilarious uh, images you'll uh, ever see if you're into baseball cards, and uh, a pretty good ball player, you know, a 16, 17-year career, had some pop, at least by the standards of that time, 31 homers one year, high teens uh, most years, and as this photo reminded me, had, had a really idiosyncratic uh, extremely low crouch in his batting stance, kind of stance you, you don't see today when everything has been homogenized. So it's that time in the podcast for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? My editor's pick this week is another offering from Charlie Cook. I could pick Charlie almost every week. Uh, Charlie recently wrote, there's no excuse for rewriting Roald Dahl. Now, we talked a bit about this, and Charlie is always a great writer, but when it really hits a nerve, in fact, maybe even in the case of Roald Dahl, it's, it's just burrowing all the way down to, to bone marrow. Um, Charlie always, you know, never suffers fools gladly and uh, always is a biting wit when something is really irking him, and he has a most deserving target in this one. So, once again, well done, Charlie. Noah Rothman, what's your pick? This is going to sound like I'm sucking up, and I'm going to go with your Joe Biden is the Brezhnev of DEI, Rich. Uh, not just because the Soviet reference tickles my uh, fancy, but it's a fantastic look into Joe Biden's uh, executive order uh, on DEI and the degree to which he's turning the federal government, or wants to turn the federal government into an ideological enterprise, um, which has backfired spectacularly on Democrats since they've elevated uh, equity into this uh, all-of-government uh, imperative. But it's a it's a great uh, piece and a look at uh, something that, as you say rightly, every Republican should be on record saying we intend to dismantle on day one. Thank you very much, Charlie. 
I am going to pick Y Gonzalez v. Google Matters, which is on the homepage this morning in the Capital Matters section. This is a Supreme Court case to do with algorithms and as with Section 230. Uh, my view is that we do not need a big change in this area and that if we get one, conservatives will not be left more free by it, but less free because we will insert risk-averse progressive lawyers into the mix. Will Duffield makes this case very well. So I was going to pick Charlie's doll piece as well. And in fact, Jim, read from a portion of it. The, there's a laugh out loud portion of, of Charlie's piece. So no way you're going to get acclimated to this podcast by getting the treatment I usually get, which is having Jim pick one of my pieces, uh, as you so kindly did, but doing it as a consolation prize because there was something else he was going to pick. But uh, your, your inaugural um, piece as an em employee here at NR was uh, awesome. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. Who did this to John Fetterman? Also, I should say, I just assume everyone knows because I assume um, perhaps wrongly that all, all listeners are members of the family and the, the, the tribe and, and follow us all of us extremely closely. But you're, of course, coming to us from commentary, uh, one of the best uh, publications in the English language and has been for a very very long time. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Bowen Branch Sheets and Donors Trust. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. See you next time.